0: a whole list of names. I haven't studied Hebrew or Greek or anything, so I'll try my best to pronounce them properly. Anyway, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Abed, Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Isaiah. Isaiah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Amon. Amon the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Abiud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor. Ezra, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. (laughs) Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abram to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14, From the Exile to the Messiah.
1: Well, first of all, I think you absolutely nailed that reading. Can you give a quick round of applause for that? That was amazing. Uh, Well done. that is an amazing reading, uh, but good morning everyone. I first want to introduce myself because some of you might think, who is this strange man up here? Some of you may have never seen me before. Some of you probably know a fair bit about me. Uh, some of you have probably realised already that I have a mainlander's accent. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a local. Uh, I am actually recently been poached from the mainland uh, and I think to put it a more positive spin on it, I've entered the promised land of Lonnie, <laughs> or so I've been told. Uh, with my wife, Annie, and two kids, Jesse and Heidi, and I have the wonderful privilege of being one of your new pastors here at the branch. I'm personally keen to get to know each of you, so feel free to approach me, come up, talk to me, talk to my wife as well, she knows a lot about me that I may not share, and... I'm actually keen to hear your stories as well, to hear where you're at with Christ, what we can be doing as a church to love and serve one another as well. And the best way we can do that is to get to know one another's stories and to encourage one another on in loving good deeds as we're taught by the Master Himself. So I am very, very excited to be here. Uh, I'm very, very excited to be up the front here to preach as we start our series. It's a word you probably haven't heard in a while. It's an exciting word. In Matthew's gospel. But before I begin this morning, I do want to address the elephant in the room for some of us. Uh, Some of you, as you are sitting there hearing this read, apart from all these amazing baby names you can choose from, you will have thought, I think I've heard this one before. And that's because about eight or so weeks ago, you actually had this exact passage read to you and preached to you by Tom Hemphill. And so I woke up this morning. And I thought, you know what would be a great way to kick off is to start my time here by preaching through the genealogy. In fact, I've just made the decision now on this spot that we're going to scrap the series in Matthew and we're going to look at every genealogy in the Bible for the rest of this term. I'm glad you laughed. You clearly knew that was a joke. All joking aside, though, I do want to address something quickly here, um, because it is a bit of a coincidence that we happen to be going through Matthew 1, 1 to 17 again this morning. Uh, But given everything I've just said, I want to remind us of the importance of how God's word actually works, uh, how God works as he speaks to us through his word. Because if I were to take a transcript of Tom's sermon and give it word for word for you today, I would hedge my bets. In fact, I would guarantee you that the Holy Spirit would still be at work in our hearts, would still be teaching us and training us, convicting us of sin and the things concerning righteousness, I guarantee you that as God's word is unpacked, regardless of what we look at, that he still speaks to us through his spirit. And so can I use this opportunity then uh, to dive into this genealogy once again and to remind us all as we do this that you can never, ever... Outgrow the word of God or the gospel. That as a Bible teaching church, as we are here at the branch, we're not to puff ourselves up and to be constantly digging and searching for all the shiny new things that impress us. In fact, you read this of the Athenians in Acts. That's that's what they're known for. We're not here to seek the shiny and the new. Uh, We're here not to learn merely intellectual truths about the Bible that, that somehow... We can outgrow the gospel by by digging further things up. Because the reality is you can't outgrow the gospel. And in God's mercy, none of us ever will. The same goes for myself. And I think all praise to God for this, because what this does is it humbles us. It causes us once again to throw ourselves onto the mercy of God, as we're reminded again and again of how much we desperately need Jesus. So, as we turn our attention to this genealogy, once again, uh, please use this as an opportunity to grow, uh, use this as an opportunity to hear God speak to your hearts once again. And with all that in mind, we are now going to dig into this, but before I do, uh, how about I pray for us all this morning. (laughs) Heavenly Father, please humble us this morning, help us to see you and to hear you afresh. Father, as you look at the genealogy of your son, Jesus, please speak to us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm first going to check that this thing works. It will eventually. We've tried this. Oh, it buzzed. I don't know if it will. That's all right. I'll give a signal when we're going to push on. So in our Bibles, uh, Matthew, the way that our Bibles are all put together, it is the start of the New Testament. And what this is, is a start of a new chapter in salvation history. Uh, The arrival of Jesus in the New Testament at its very core signals a new, fresh beginning. In fact, this is exactly how Matthew seems to title his gospel. So the opening words, if I go to the next slide, they literally translate the book of of the genesis, or the beginning, of Jesus Christ. And the question we have to ask ourselves at this point is, is this the title of just the genealogy that follows, or is this the title of something more? Now, the plain reading of this title is that, yes, what will follow is the story of Jesus' origins, humanly speaking. It's certainly true. In fact, this is exactly what we get with the genealogy that follows. It tells you where he came from. It tells you who his family is, it tells you what tribe he's from, and so on. However, there are some that have thought or taken this title of Matthew's gospel as the opening title to the whole book. They've broadened it to go, this is actually the title Matthew has given to his entire work. And here's why. If you look back to the very, very tail end of Matthew, if you look to how he finishes right at the end of chapter 28... What we see is Jesus promising to be with his disciples until the very end of the age. The consummation of all things, the end of all things. In other words, Matthew's last words are Jesus telling us he's going to be around at the very end of time itself. And so this has led some, uh, including myself, to think that Matthew was probably intending these words right at the beginning here, the book of the Genesis or the beginning of Jesus Christ to be the other bookend to this whole gospel. That the title, what it does is it points us to this new beginning, this new Genesis or I guess Genesis 2.0, that Jesus himself is in fact the new and true beginning and end of all things. Now, this doesn't stop the title from pointing us to what immediately follows this long list of names, the the literal human genesis of Jesus. But as we'll soon see, Matthew has a tendency to throw deeper meaning into much of his work. This uh, man is an extraordinarily gifted author who has crafted this gospel very, very carefully. And at many points, he's added a depth that we may not at first glance realise. And this rule, uh, it applies for the next part of the first verse as well. So in the same verse, Jesus writes, this is the, the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Tom, he did a great job of pointing us to why these two figures are significant here. And the short answer is, is because these two figures in the Old Testament are people who are given some staggering promises from the lips of God. So David, in two Samuel seven, God promised to raise up uh, offspring to succeed him. Raising up, he says, "Your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom." And in verse sixteen, he says, "Your house and your kingdom, well, it will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." There's two things before we move on to Abraham that I want us to note here. As God makes his promise, twice we see God saying, I will. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, you must, to David. He doesn't say, you must do this, you must do that, you must keep all my commands, and so on and so forth. No, God says to David, irrespective of your faithfulness, and we see how terrible his faithfulness is at points in his own story, Irrespective of your faithfulness, David, or even the faithfulness of your descendants, I will, guaranteed, 100% establish my kingdom through you. How amazing is that? It's unbelievable in some respects that, that even in doubt and unfaithfulness, even in sin, that despite these things, God's plans and promises can't get derailed. His promises are as sure and as certain as the very air that you guys are breathing right now. They're as sure and as certain as the sun is hot. And just on a side note, that is one of the things I've noticed down here, that your sun is hot. It's like, it's like they dialed it up to 11 in Tasmania. I, I get burnt very, very quickly and easily. Some, I, the morning routine has changed, let's put it that way. But this, this promise to David, it is a, what we call a temporal promise, Or in other words, it's a promise that focuses on the time aspect of David's throne. How long does God say he will establish David's throne? Forever. That's a long time. That hot sun in the sky that I was mentioning, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but it will one day run out of fuel and essentially explode. And all of human history is going to go with it. Everything in the whole universe, the whole cosmos, will eventually come to an end. Uh, If you're a physics nerd, you'd know that that entropy, uh, the eventual disorder of everything, means that this existence, all that we know, all that we can see, touch, and feel, and observe, will eventually die, this horrible heat death. The whole universe will eventually come to an end. And yet even then, David's throne will still stand. That's God's bona fide, surefire, guaranteed promise to David. Now, the promise to Abraham, well, this focuses less on the temporal nature of things, the time aspect of things, of this Messiah's reign, and instead focuses on the breadth of who this is for. So if you skip to Genesis 12, and I'm just going to highlight verse 3 here, but if you look at 1 to 3, you get all the promises. Verse 3, we read that all peoples of earth will be blessed through you. This is not just some people. This is not just some particular races or tribes. It's not just some particular ages or languages or backgrounds. It doesn't matter whether you're a cat person or a dog person or an I hate all animals equally person. The promise is open to you. It's for all people. And so we can gather up those two things, the the meaning of these promises, and follow them along. The opening of Matthew's gospel, or the meaning, reads something like this. This is the, the Steve Young translation. Here is the origin of Jesus in this book, God's chosen king, who is for all nations, for all time. That's the way Matthew starts his gospel, and what a way, it's not even just his gospel, it's the start of the New Testament. One verse packed with so much meaning. Israel, listen up, here is your king who was promised long ago. I've followed through. Nations, understand. All people. Here is your hope. And then what comes out of this, what comes next? I think is one of the most finely crafted pieces of literature, I would argue, in probably the whole of the New Testament, and it's in the form of this genealogy. Because you see, this this isn't just any old genealogy. This isn't merely a list of historical figures, as much as it might seem so. This isn't just a bunch of names, though I think in the hands of a lesser-skilled author perhaps it may have been. While on the surface uh, the reading might appear drier than a box of wheat bix without milk, there is someone in our household that eats wheat bix without milk. <laughs> it staggers me, it staggers the mind. What we have before us in this genealogy is a massive theological statement, and it's designed to teach us about ourselves. It's designed to teach us about God. It's effectively a mini sermon, believe it or not, in the form of a genealogy. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of this morning unpacking. And we're going to start uh, the way that Matthew does. We're going to be breaking this into the list of names into three lots of 14 generations. And I think the best way to picture this is like a giant capital letter N. So let me explain. The first generation, from Abraham to David, verses 2 to 6, generally speaking, it heads upward in human history. And so by this, I mean that the promises given to Abraham, so if you remember the promises, land, people, blessing, they were pretty much fulfilled by the time we reached this point in human history. So the nation of Israel, in other words, they were safely in the promised land. Abraham's descendants on top of that had expanded into this great number of people. And around the time of David, especially in the earlier years of his son Solomon, they were certainly being a blessing to the nations around them. So think Queen of Sheba, seeking wisdom from the King of Israel, right? So if you were living in those days, if you were living in the days of David and the early days of Solomon, you'd be forgiven for having your daily devotion, stumbling across Genesis 12 and thinking, oh, this is it. Like, God has done it. He has fulfilled his promises. Hallelujah. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this is the climax of the promise given to Abraham, But just when anyone thinks that they are on top of the world, we need to remember that the earth rotates once every 24 hours. And so by this second block of 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, almost like an avalanche, things spiral down into oblivion. And this is like the slope of the N as it plummets down. As God judges his people for their sin, for their rejection of him, and he sends them into exile. And this section of the letter and this is roughly the period of the kings and the prophets. Finally, this third generation, verses 12 to 16, we move upward once again as the true fulfillment of all the promises are found in this person, Jesus. This is the way that Matthew has laid out his genealogy for us. Three blocks of 14 generations, which effectively provide a mini-story of salvation history. It's a sermon about the nature and character of God and even ourselves. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that in each of these three blocks, the way that Matthew has constructed this, there is something peculiar, something odd that sort of stands out. There's something that Matthew has sprinkled in to make his readers stop and scratch their heads and think, hmm, what's the deal with this? What's that doing in there? In the first block, we'll see that Matthew, for whatever reason, uh, decides to include four women in Jesus' family tree. So if you were reading, you would have Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba. And while we read this, and it might not be as striking for us in the 21st century, uh, I want to put this as delicately as possible. Generally speaking, in ancient Eastern genealogies, you would never, ever put a woman's name in a genealogy, in the list. That is, you wouldn't do that unless somehow she benefited that genealogy. So for example, she might demonstrate the purity of the bloodline, showing where it all goes. Or it might her presence might enhance the dignity of the line in some way. Now if you know your Old Testament, you know Tamar and all these other women, you'd know that they don't really serve either of these purposes. Let me give you a couple of examples. Rahab, she's famous for being a brothel owner. She's a a prostitute, for example. She's from Jericho. Ruth, uh, while she might be the purest of them all, she was, in fact, a Moabite. And what this means uh, is that she is from this... Basically, all the Moabites, uh, they are the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter in Genesis 19. And the Moabites, uh, if you were to read your Bible and go down to Deuteronomy 23, you'd realize these guys are so loved by Israel that they're essentially excluded from ever joining them in fellowship with God down to the 10th generation. It's Deuteronomy 23.3. Now, down to the 10th generation, this effectively means forever. Uh, It's code for the Moabites are never to join God's people. And so it's kind of mind-boggling that all of a sudden, Ruth is here. She's in this list. And not only that, but she's in the bloodline of the promised one, Jesus. We also have Tamar and Bathsheba. And uh, this brings me to a very quick uh, point, that if you don't know who these people are, um, if I'm speaking nonsense to you right now, you, you know those moments where you're talking with people and you know, someone's like really, they're an expert in their field, right? And they're going on and on and on and on. And you're going, yeah, mm, oh, okay, yeah, mm, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And then they go, so what do you reckon? And you're just like, oh, deer in the headlights. I have no idea what you're saying. The last five minutes, I've kind of tuned out. I'm sorry. Things get really awkward, right? First of all, if, if that's you when you're hearing these names, if, if you have no idea who they are, that's totally fine. Uh, but can I use this as an opportunity to go and encourage you not only to go and investigate who these people are in the Bible, but perhaps go one step further and set yourself a Bible reading plan that forces you, it kind of gets you into a position where you tackle all those bits of the Bible that maybe you've never read or never come across before. A reading plan which covers the entire Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. I mean, you don't want to get to heaven. Um, You don't want to have these women here And they're like, hey, I'm in the Bible. I'm kind of famous. And you're like, who are you? (laughs) And and Ruth's like, are you kidding? There's a whole book written about me in the Bible. Did you read it? And then Bathsheba comes along and she's like, so you have no idea what David, my husband, did to me and my former husband. And then David's in the background going, oh, man, like, does she have to say this to every single new person that comes here? (laughs) And she goes on, she's like, yeah, and David even wrote this whole poem about what he did. Did you read that one? Now, in all seriousness, Matthew here, he, he expects his readers to know who these people are in their Bibles. He expects his readers to know why these people are in this genealogy, or who they are at the very least, uh, I was particularly confronted uh, many, many years ago. I was at a training event run by AFES, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, and the speaker up the front, he said in no uncertain terms, and I quote, if you don't know the Old Testament, then you don't know Jesus. If you don't know the Old Testament, then you don't know Jesus. And I sat there like, oh, how like, How offensive. As someone who knew and loved the Lord Jesus, but wasn't particularly well-versed in the Old Testament, that, that was hard-hitting. I thought, How, who do you think you are? How dare you? Until I realized what he meant by this. Namely, that Jesus' identity, Jesus' mission, what he accomplished on the cross, his, his future return and his reign over all things, and many, many more, these are only properly understood when seen through the lens of the Old Testament. So why did Matthew include these four women in the family tree? I think it's a good question. It's obviously not necessarily to enhance the the purity of Jesus' lineage or his heritage. Uh, Many of these women, and I should throw pretty much all the men as well in this list, uh, were horrendous sinners, Uh, many of these women were a cross-section of the nations as well. Some of them had no Israelite blood in their veins at all. Ruth, we know, is a Moabite. Rahab's from Jericho. And this is debated. Um, It's up to you. Do do your own research on this. But Tamar is said perhaps to be a Canaanite and Bathsheba a Hittite. But at the very least, we know know Ruth and Rahab. We know they're not Israelites. And what this means is, is that we not only have the promise to Abraham, this good news for all the nations being hinted at in this first block but we see sinners being welcomed in as well the sum total of this first block is a gospel being preached of divine grace and mercy to all nations and this is the genius of matthew now in stark contrast to that high point this second block it highlights another aspect of god as we witness the family tree of Jesus plunging into the story of judgment and exile. This is the the downward slope in the capital letter N. Now, in this slope, what we have is a lonely and depressing time in Jesus' family tree, as the nation of Israel not only lose, one, their land, right, they're carried off into exile, uh, two, they lose many of their people in the process, and three, blessing. Well, what's a blessing? It's nowhere to be found anymore. That is to say this is the complete reversal of the promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And so humanly speaking it's over. They can kiss goodbye to any of their blessing, any land, any righteous king who'll reign forever. This is an extremely low point in their history. And Matthew well he wants to drive this point home to his original readers. So the first thing to note is that Matthew, he goes out of his way to mention Uriah here. Uh, Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba, and he's mentioned at the very beginning of block six. This is a man who David murdered, and not only did he murder him, but he did it in order to cover up uh, an act of adultery that he did with Bathsheba. And so Matthew, he's kicking off this second block, this block that I would say represents this plunge into sin with a bang. Because by not mentioning Bathsheba and mentioning Uriah, Matthew's highlighting David's sin. He's highlighting this murder and this adultery. This is why I think Uriah's name is in the beginning of this second block. It's meant to make you think, they're at a high point. Uh Uh-oh, hang on, hang on, something's not right here. And this sets the tone for the rest of this second block. Matthew has also sprinkled in a few other things designed to capitalise on this theme of exile here. Just as he included four women in the first block, that would have made the first century reader go, whoa, what's that doing in there? In the second block, uh, Matthew has had a little bit of fun with this list of kings, uh, and in particular with some of the names of the kings. Uh, in fact, in the second block, there are a couple of Uh, spelling changes or some might call them mistakes to these kings. Now, unfortunately, when I go on from here, um, this is where our English Bibles tend to fix this up. So they tend to fix them and sort them into the names of the actual kings, which can obscure this point. But some of your Bibles, if you've bought your own, I checked the NIVs at the back, they don't have a footnote for this, but some of your Bibles may indicate what the spelling of these names were in the original texts, And so I'll give you a couple of examples. If you skip down to verses 7 and 8, we see a king called Asa mentioned. In some of your Bibles, they may have a footnote in that saying that the most reliable original manuscripts of Matthew have the name written as Asaph. There's a PH on the end there, not Asa. Now, why does this matter? It's because Asaph happens to be one of the more prominent psalmists of the Bible. He's not, in the, uh, he's not a king. He's not in the family tree of Jesus. But Asaph in particular was known for writing a whole bunch of psalms which have this distinct smell of exile in them. So Psalm 73 to 83. Again, you don't want to get to heaven and meet Asaph. And he's like, hey, did you read my psalms? And you're like, what? <laughs> so go and read them. These Psalms have a very distinct flavour of exile in them. And so Matthew's inclusion in this second block of Asaph, well, surprise, surprise, it, it's kind of pointing to this end in exile. I personally don't think this was a spelling mistake. The second anomaly, if you could argue or call it that, is found in verse 10. So you have a second king here, King Ammon. And again, the most reliable original texts. Change that N at the end of his name to an S, which make Amos. And again, if you know your Old Testament, um, Amos, he is also another prominent prophet who's known for writing, especially in chapter 6 of Amos. Go and read that after the service. Chapter 6 of Amos, you see them plunging into exile. There is this heavy warning of God's judgment on the people. Now, at first, it's kind of curious that Matthew would have Asaph and Amos, that the spelling of the king's names would be kind of tinkered with slightly. But I can almost guarantee you, I don't think he's trying to pull a swift one on his readers. He's not trying to sub a king out for somebody else here because that would have almost certainly been picked up by all the fact checkers in his day. Uh, You know, people memorize like lists of the presidents and things like that there absolutely would have been first century uh, Jewish people that memorize all the lists of the kings. They would know them like the back of their hands. And they would read this and go, no, there's, there's, there's a mistake here. And I think Matthew's one of those people. I think he would have known what he was doing. And so I personally think that he includes these names to make a very clear theological statement about this second block, this second block of 14 generations Where in the first block, we see God's mercy and grace. The second block, it's reminding his readers of the holiness of God. That is, that sin, our rejection of him, leads to the certainty of his judgment. And even if it's too much of a stretch to think about the spelling, look at the beginning with Uriah, look at the end, ending in exile, you can still see it there clear as day. That's the second slope. Finally, as we reach the third block, uh, kind of the upward trajectory of this capital letter N, we're given this amazing reprieve in the fact that we see that judgment is not God's final word to his people. This final block of 14 generations, Matthew, he traces the final few names of Jesus' family tree down to Joseph, then Mary, and then to the Saviour himself the one that God promised long ago to Abraham and to David, who was for all nations for all time. In other words, what we see in this final block of the genealogy is God's answer to our ever-wavering faith and our propensity to sin. God's answer to this is to show us that despite our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Despite the fact that we wander, our God is good and steadfast. Where God has promised to Abraham and to David an heir who would bless all the nations and reign as king forever, he is now delivered to us in Jesus. Now you look at the long history with this capital letter N, and you realize that took a very long time. And humanly speaking, it it really did. In fact, many of us, we may have to go through some pretty dire and dark times in order to get to that light at the end. Our situations, they may not have come about as we expected or as we planned, but just as God sometimes might seem distant or even late to the party in our own lives, when he does come, in a way that that very often we only realise after the fact, he's always right on time. So in these three blocks of 14 generations, we see Matthew highlighting God's mercy as seen in the inclusion of these women in the first block, his holiness, his justice, as the people headed into exile for their sin in the second block. But ultimately, we finish on this massive high. I was considering extending the top part of the end so it just shoots off into the stratosphere. Ultimately, we finish on this massive high as we see God's complete and utter faithfulness to us. He delivers in full on his promises of old, of a saviour who would reign forever and be for everyone. This is what we see in Matthew's genealogy. What it is, essentially, is a theology of God and of ourselves. It's far from being dry or boring. In fact, it's one of the great gems, I think, of the New Testament. This this long list of 40-plus names... It emphasizes the character and the faithfulness of our God throughout history. There's one theologian. Uh, He summed it up in this way Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. He said, Matthew's genealogy, it's not only a genealogy, it's theology. It's not only an archive, it's doctrine. It's not only history, it's a sermon. And I think he's right. Friends, I'm hoping by now that you can see the character of God jumping from this page, at least a little bit. That you can see why this is far from dry or boring. But I'm hoping by now as well that in these opening 17 verses, you can also see that, that none of us are too far gone to be used by God. That this genealogy, it shows us that God, he's sovereign, he's in control of all of history... He's incredibly gracious. He's incredibly forgiving. He's still a good and faithful God at the times that you feel your very best and even at the times that you feel at your worst, even in the time of your darkest hour, as we can see here. But more than this, what this also shows us is that God can and does use many broken vessels to accomplish his purposes. Jesus' genealogy is a prime example of God working through all kinds of messy people and messy situations to show us who he is and to bring about his ultimate purposes and plans for the world. And so this morning, if you're sitting here, some of you might have a lot of baggage, some of you maybe you hide it really well. Some of you, maybe you're the car park uh, Sunday morning person, you know, the morning's just so stressful, you're kind of grumpy and you you park your car, pull up the handbrake and you kind of go... (sighs) Open the door, waltz on in, hey everyone, how are we all doing? If you carry all this baggage, perhaps, or that you have no idea where to start in making him known to your friends or to your family, your colleagues perhaps what's going through your mind as you think about things like evangelism is is how could God possibly use me? I have no gifts. In fact, I haven't told anyone, but my life is a mess. My sins, they're just far too big and far too many. How could God possibly use me? Well, can I say take heart? Because this genealogy shows us that God is bigger than your sin. He's bigger than your anxieties, he's bigger than your imperfections, and ultimately he is faithful. And so I want to encourage you, instead go to Jesus, lay your sin before him, confess your sin to him. In fact, as, as growth groups kick off for the year as they did last week and will continue on, I want to encourage you, perhaps be brave and do this in your growth groups. Confess your sin. Be be honest about your struggles. Be honest about the times where you're feeling dry or distant. And then turn your attention once again to Jesus. See God's faithfulness to us in sending him. Know that God is ever faithful. But know especially that even a simple childlike trust in him means you will be saved. In fact, I want to raise one quick verse from the end of the genealogy. If you were to skip a couple of verses on, kind of edging into next week's territory here, but verse 21, uh, we see one of the goals that Matthew lists uh, of Jesus coming to earth, and this is the angel speaking to Joseph. The angel says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Through Jesus, all of us have everything we need to make an eternal impact on those around us. Even through what we consider great weakness and great sin, God can work powerfully through you for his kingdom. Isn't that a great reminder? Let me pray. Father God... Well, thank you for showing us uh, how in your majesty you use many people uh, from throughout all of history to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we thank you that you worked through a strange and offered checkered family tree, uh, a tree full of sinners and broken people, and helped Matthew compile this rich beginning to the New Testament. Lord, help us as we finish off today, uh, this morning, help us as we go out of this building to re-enter the world, to wherever you've placed us this week, to help us have confidence in your faithfulness to us. And Lord, may this speak into our lives, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.